0: What's up everyone? Welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio with Dan and Neath. Hi Dan, you alright?
1: What episode? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's nice pajamas, nice pajamas. Yeah, so I was having a nice Sunday day of just watching rom coms and eating ice cream, and then Dan came around in all his football hooliganery.
0: You're not actually joking, that's the thing. If you can see Nath now, he actually does he'll just send me a message occasionally saying he's watching a rom com. Sometimes I send some, some ice cream.
1: Yeah. And then I'll like kind of send some of like me and like some kind of Pajama lingerie, like, a yeah. see-through. It's hot, man. Yeah, thanks.
0: Um,
1: all right, what's been going on
0: in Wales this week? Let's just do a quick recap.
1: Yeah, um, not much. So uh, last time we did an episode, we were talking about, you know, how Jack Sargent was going for that Allen and D-side uh, AM position, was it? Or what would you say? AM seat? <laughs> yeah, seat, fine. Yeah, fine. he was looking for a seat in Allen and D-side. So he's got that. Surprise, surprise. That uh, was a big turnout as well.
0: 20, Massive turnout. 29%. One, really? of the best, one of the best takes I saw was...
1: Actually, twenty nine percent is good. Mm. But I mean, I, for that, I reckon that just sums up Wales or oh, like Welsh politics in a nutshell. If you have, yeah, so
0: yeah, if you have to know anything about Wales, twenty nine percent turnout and a safe Labour seat. Uh, Labour cheerleaders online saying actually twenty nine percent is a good turnout.
1: Yeah, they put in somebody whose only kind of qualification for, to be in there was like my dad used to have this seat. Now I'm going in. Uh, you had. Darren Hill purposely say like oh, I'm gonna sit this one out, so basically, so it can. But the implication, add to the, the, impl- yeah. the implication of it all is
0: that whoever Labour would have stood, like whoever Labour would have stood, would have won by an absolute landslide. Yeah, and I, and I think uh, Carrie, I forget her last name, sorry, but uh, but the the plaid candidate was widely, you know, considered to be really good. Um, plaid did terribly, um, which just goes to show me like the, the political system is at the situation in Wales now where. Labour's hegemony is just completely unassailable and really everyone else may as well just pack up and go home I think it's time for players to just call it a day to be honest yeah because um, you can't or just or just don't bother standing like I feel bad for them and people are saying well we haven't got the resources and things like that well sort it out
1: yeah get international funding I don't, I don't know I've
0: just got very little sympathy you know I mean it's. I mean, labour are like, labour should be at the most vulnerable, really, at the moment, and they've just not dented. They've not <laughs> made any dents at all, have they? God, I think we should just drop the Wales this week thing because it's just it's so depressing. Talking, like, here's the news, right? That's happening in Wales. The Black Panther, the new like all black Marvel film. It's all black, is it? They. I'm not going to see it. They flew a. They flew a Welsh flag. In that, their, that, their model, the fake version of the United Nations. There was a Welsh flag. There and is, is that, con-
1: They didn't even fly it. It was like kind of draped and doing and nothing. That,
0: and that's like considered, that made it to Wales Online. And people have been like, wow, like in this fake universe, Wales is recognized. But like, I can almost guarantee that people making the movie are like, what the hell is this stupid flag with the dragon on it? Let's
1: just Or just on. put it in as a prop. Like it's not like Kevin Fee, the yeah. producer, was just like, oh, by the way, yeah, I'm really sympathetic to Welsh nationalism.
0: Just, it just, it, it, it says a lot. I think, really, about how low sort of national confidence and expectations are in Wales that just the act of recognition itself on international stage. It warrants an article. Yeah, but, but, but like people have said before, you know, like how Cardiff was, like, misrepresented in War of the, War of the Worlds and things like that. And, oh, yeah, because that, that was the other thing. War of the Worlds. And uh, not War of the Worlds, and World War Z. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was the other thing. There was an earthquake yesterday <laughs> in Wales, and on the international Richter scale thing, it says earthquake, like... West of Bristol, UK, <laughs> <laughs> and P- Welsh like nationalist Twitter just went to absolute meltdown. They were like, "Did he feel that at all?" Like it's Wales, no. Uh,
1: my the house shook a bit because then- I fell out of bed. What it- <laughs>
0: like caused it? All right, so we've got Jack Sargent won. The Welsh flag was in a film, uh, and then eight Cardiff council people have been arrested within the waste management team on suspicion of fraud. They should arrest the main councillors for fraudulently
1: impersonating socialists and uh, that's what they were though they were pretending they're like uh, fraudulent not fraudulent they were pretending they were socialists arrested been been uh,
0: men all right so that's all the news basically so this episode is one we've actually sat on for six weeks It's part of a, a series we're going to do looking at international relations specifically focusing on national liberation struggles of small countries uh, or stateless nations Today we're going to be doing, so we'll call it something along the lines of, you know, Desolation Does International Relations or the Desolation Radio Guide to International Relations. Mm. If you can think of a snappier title, by all means, send it to us. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about Kurdistan and specifically what's been going on in Syrian Kurdistan. You know, since the Syrian civil war started, the Kurds have sort of begun their own sort of unique social experiment in the Kurdish parts of northern Syria. But this episode, again, it's one we've been sitting on, has been given some added urgency because what we talked about in the episode was that once ISIS are defeated, then everything's going to sort of kick off again in the Middle East between sort of great powers and that has come to pass in particular recently, uh, Turkey, who've sort of been, all they've done in the Syrian conflict, that yeah, up until relatively recently was has been to give safe passage to ISIS fighters to train them, which is obviously an appalling thing because they are a fascist state, but Which uh, one now, Turkey and, Turkey. I, of my, oh, and uh, ISIS? But, they, but Turkey had basically been fighting a war by proxy. They hadn't been sort of overtly, or obviously in Syria since, well, I think it was the last, well, two, three weeks ago, they uh, they mounted a full-scale land invasion. Was
1: it um, weirdly called Operation Olive Branch? Yeah, that's like the horrible um, Orwellian. Kafkaesque, yeah. yeah,
0: So basically, Turkey have invaded northern Syria. Uh, They've invaded Afrin, which is on the Syrian-Turkish border, which is like a predominantly Kurdish area. And it's like sort of Central to the Kurdish national imaginary. It's, there's, there's Mount Kurd is there. So, Turkey have invaded alongside and given open support now to Al Qaeda backed uh, militants. So, I'm reading an awesome article in, in Jacobin. So, Turkey now openly cooperates with jihadist groups with their roots in Al Qaeda, such as Filak al Sham, Jais al Nazar, Jabat al Shamir, Ara al Sham, Sukar al Jabba and the Sultan Murad Brigade. Well and, remembered that. And the Nuruddin Zengi Brigade, which made headlines in the West when they decapitated a 12-year-old boy with a knife in July 2016. So these are the groups that Turkey is openly allied with now. Let's not forget that Turkey is a member of NATO. Welsh troops routinely go over to Turkey and train the Turkish military into doing all this, which is something that, you know, our Labour government celebrates and endorses. Um, so it's just appalling. I mean, and there was a, already these sort of Islamist lunatics Along, along with Turkey, have committed numerous war crimes, like they, they killed a female YPJ fighter, and then mutilated her body, dragged it behind a truck. And it's just it's just disgusting, really, what's going on. And what's significant is the the complete lack of solidarity shown from by the international community. A lot of the same people who were kicking off about Catalonia, um, and the Spanish state's sort of repression there, haven't really said much about the fact that Turkey are, although, interestingly, a unison, and I think it was unison, or unite one of the main British trade unions who were like famously, like historically militarist, mm. they actually released a pretty decent statement saying, like, you know, the British government must condemn this, but obviously the British government haven't. So these recent developments have overtaken us. Really, one of the main reasons that Turkey have invaded Afrin, well, is just to crush the YPG. They've used it as a, they've labelled it as a generic sort of anti-terror uh, operation. You know, Erdogan has repeatedly said that the area around Afrin should be cleaned and returned to its real owners, even though. Kurds have historically been the dominant ethnic group of Afrin, so already there's alarming signs of, in, you know, enforced Arabization and ethnic cleansing. You know, bombing and wiping out of, Tur- of Kurdish sort of national symbols in Afrin. This is just part of Turkey's denial of any sort of Kurdish autonomy outside Turkish borders, because you know any independent Kurdish sort of enclave outside Turkey is seen by the Turks as an immediate threat to the Turkish state. So uh, Erdogan pronounced, you know, today or tomorrow, Kobane or Kobani will fall. And so this this is just a pattern of, part of the pattern of increased aggression Mm -hmm. from the fascist Turkish state against the Kurds. So we wanted this episode with our good friend Bethan to sort of explain basically what's been going on in Syrian Kurdistan and explain the social revolution that's been happening there, because that's another facet of it. You know, Erdogan is, you know, an Islamist the difference is he's like nato's islamist but he's an incredibly conservative person and the and the sort of the radical emancipatory sort of things that are going on in syrian kurdistan are also a direct affront to his theocratic sort of islamic version of fascism so let's see what's being wiped out okay we'd like to be joined by beth mckernan beth is the middle east or a middle East reporter.
2: A Middle East reporter. For the independ-
0: The only Middle East reporter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for the Independent. And she's covered the war in Syria and the war in Yemen. Um, she's going to hopefully explain that today. And we're just really chuffed to have her. So w- welcome, Bethan. Thank you for having me. And you're from Barry, I understand.
2: I am Basra. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so yeah, the first, so the first question that everyone needs to know is like, so you're based in Beirut. Is Beirut cleaner than Cardiff?
2: <laughs> um, no.
0: Is Raqqa
1: cleaner than Cardiff?
2: Also no. <laughs> Can't believe Um, this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, actually, maybe Beirut is cleaner because the government is so ineffective and rubbish. Basically, private companies have stepped in, and there's now even like a recycling cooperative that employs Syrian refugees and stuff. So it's probably like the most forward-thinking public system that you've got going in the Middle East at the minute. But it's not, you know, government run.
0: All right. So you've you've been. I mean which I think is incredibly impressive. You've been covering the war in Syria, which is very complicated, but you've been in Ro- Rojava, which is an autonomous part of the north of Syria. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at you and sort of, hopefully I'm not going to, you know, <laughs> I'm getting it right. That you know, has sort of been carved out by the Kurds since the start of the Syrian war. And it's autonomous. It's run by the YPG, or was or it the SDF it's run by? Uh,
2: like PYD a- is the political party. And um, the YPG is the, uh, like, the armed forces. But, yeah, they are connected.
0: So the interesting thing about Rojava, I mean, obviously it was interesting. Rojava sort of was in, at the center of the world media when ISIS sort of besieged Kobane, was it Kobani? Kobani, or, um, yeah. Which was a canton in Rojava, I think it's the end of 2014. Yeah. And they were just, they sort of stood alone, didn't they, really? And all well, the eyes of the world were on this town and it was mm-hmm. insane. They just bombarded it. I guess what's interesting is that Rojava's caught the attention of the world's left, hasn't it? Because it's kind of it's based on the principles of democratic and federalism espoused by Abdullah Öcalan, the jail leader of the PKK, who's, I think he's just chilling on the island in Turkey, isn't he? He's, <laughs> yeah, he's, under man, result, he's isn't the only he? person there, isn't he, on the jail?
2: I don't hmm. think he is anymore, but he was for a really long time. <sighs> like, soul, really? soul. Uh... Yeah.
0: <laughs> roommate sort. But, you know, it's, it's basically a, seen as a huge social experiment, isn't it? The development of a new society, basically, Definitely. and you know, if you're an anarchist, there's this concept called prefiguration, which is basically just creating a new society out of the shadow of the old, and and that's why sort of leftists the world over, some of them have gone to fight for the People's Protection Units so or the YPG. I think David Graeber went over there to sort of see how the Rijeka experiment was going on, and, mm-hmm. and obviously with it being the left, as we've said, it's um it's caused sectarian arguments where oh this isn't proper communism, mm-hmm. this isn't proper anarchism, but We wanted to just ask you firstly, Beth, and what's it like on the ground in Rojava in terms of this social revolution that is being built?
2: I guess the most important thing to remember with it is it's always in flux. Mm. I guess one thing to build a new society as it is, it's another thing to build it when you've literally got ISIS on every side of you and then the sides where there aren't ISIS, you've got Turkey, which hates you, and you've got the Syrian regime. Like it's the fact that anything functions there at all is kind of incredible, let Mm. alone that it's, even sort of working in any kind of way. It measured up to a lot of my expectations. I hadn't been to Syria for a long time before I managed to get into Rojava last autumn for the Raqqa campaign. And yeah, I mean, a lot of it, does work like you mentioned Kobani um I'd never been there until last year so all of the images of of the complete destruction that was wrought on it by both ISIS on the ground and by American bombing to try and get them out that city was just in tatters there was nothing left and um you know I saw drone material of just actually getting an overview of how complete the destruction was and I was there in September which is pretty much two years to the day after they managed to liberate it. And it's it's not pretty, but it's completely rebuilt. Like, you'd never really know that that had happened there. So, and, you know, the, it's not like they're getting international funding for this. Like, it's just within their own Kurdish networks and, like, the expat network sending money back. Like, yeah. they are just getting on with things for themselves, which is novel in that part of the world when things get, you know, built and then blown up again, like, quite a lot. So... Yeah, I think considering the circumstances, they've had a lot of...
0: It hasn't been a very good few years for the people in No, Syrian, Unless you're a building Syrian contractor. Yeah. No, it hasn't. But, hands.
2: Yeah, but theoretically, you know, they've had years and years and years to think about what they want a state to look like yeah. and the principles they want to build that on. And um, when Syria imploded, they literally just seized the moment and they yeah. were like, right, okay, well, we're doing it now. Yeah, They so, don't even really want, like... They don't even really particularly want a state Mm. itself. You know, the whole Oshiland's kind of thing now is sort of stateless democracy, like confederalism. And they want that for the Kurdish areas of Iraq and Iran and Turkey and Syria to sort of, you know, sub-government level, I guess, like sub-state level. Um, We're talking
1: about like say, councils, aren't we? Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, It it is
1: remarkable, as you said. I mean, it's
0: a living social experiment based on the writings of, the anarchist writings of, Orchelan. Well, Orchelan basically read Murray Bookchin, didn't he? And then he
1: changed uh, some keywords he and is... passed it off as his own. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Um, not that anyone in Rojava would know the name mm. Bookchin, I don't mm. think.
1: Do you know? Um, um, so my uh, Baba is Kurdish, and I was streaming about um, Orchelan, and I was like, oh, yeah, he's based on uh, Murray Bookchin. And he's like, what? No, he wasn't. No. no he he's <laughs> like, that. that is a pseudonym for Orchelan.
0: But Murray Bookchin was you know, an American anarchist who basically gave up, I want to say gave up trying to completely change society and he instead came up with this idea of democratic confederalism, which mm-hmm. Ocalan has sort of applied then to Kurdistan. Yeah. Um, but as you said, he just, well, firstly, it must be he must be pretty good if you're him. Mm. Cause he, but also in because he's like, all the things he's worked and thought his entire life are going on and he's stuck in prison. So previously, was Syria sort of on a federal system where the Kurdish, Kurdish areas were left to their own devices or was it... Or not?
2: Um, no, it was it was built the same way, you know, any other state would oh, okay. be. And, you know, part of the big thing that the, the Syrian curse has seized on in the last couple of years is that, you know, Syria is a Syrian Arab Republic. Like, they've always said yeah. it's never really applied to them. You know, saying that, like there wasn't real enmity between the Kurds and the state the way there was in Iraq or in Turkey um, or, you know, even Iran to the same extent anyway. You know, Kurdish young people went to Damascus and Aleppo for university. You know, there was a fair amount of cultural crossover. And when the uprisings began, a lot of it was based on the same principle of we want a fairer state that that actually represents our interests and and who we are. So... um, after the Iraqi referendum, the Kurdish referendum in September, also just before it, there was this moment where the Assad government actually said, like, oh, maybe we'll consider an autonomous Syrian Kurdistan um, or Rojava being its own separate entity. And then Baghdad crushed what happened in in Obil, And now, yeah, I think they'd be crazy to touch that again. It won't go their way. I mean, you won't meet a Kurd who doesn't want, like, their own yeah. Kurdistan. yeah. Um, it's just a question of how you make that work in like with the realities of the world that we exist in but
0: um oh this is where we just jump in and put the parallel with Wales yeah yeah <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: just gonna shoehorn it in
0: well it is significant so we, we had, Rob, we had Gr- Rob Griffiths on no He's, they
2: have they have parallels they do they do know like they know Ireland they know Wales like they they, they know Catalan like like Catalonia sorry like they know yeah what these other the movements are we can stuff, arduously yeah. kind of
1: compare it Argeland um, to Llewellyn <laughs> You just said then, like,
0: you managed to get into Sir- Syria and Raqqa as if you really wanted to go. Yeah. That's, that's a bit weird. But um, So what was that like? Because, I mean, the, the Raqqa campaign is, I mean, Kobani was, at the time, you know, ISIS were, I guess, at their peak. Then they'd been beaten back, and this was like their last stand, almost. The Kurds through you know, the YPG, and everyone had, had sort of smashed through and were basically trying to... Crush ISIS for the last time in in Raqqa. So, what was the Raqqa campaign like? Uh, <laughs> um, Meat grinder.
2: Yeah, pretty much. Mosul was as well, but it's obviously very different. Um, starting a campaign in a country that's friendly to you, as you know, the American international coalition against ISIS, than it is doing it somewhere like Syria, where all these different parties are not necessarily on the same page. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was not a fun place to be. Raqqa is the kind of town I've met people who have said, "Oh, actually, it had quite a thriving, like, intellectual culture before the Syrian civil war broke out. It's why it was one of the like centers of the of the uprising in the first place." Um, I'm not sure. I think that's quite generous. Like, it was quite a dusty place. Like, nobody had ever heard of it before ISIS decided it was going to be their de facto capital. But now everybody knows its name, it's infamous, and the destruction that has been wrought on that city, like I cannot actually describe it. Um, I mean, I can show you on my phone, I've got like all these photos and video that I still have. its It was like a ghost town, there was no one there, there was nothing left, and every like 10 minutes was just thud in the background because it was another airstrike. I don't know how many millions and millions and millions of pounds must have been spent on on the air campaign, but that's that is mainly what drove ISIS out of the city. And that's also obviously what's killed so many civilians. Yeah. Same thing in Mosul. Will will Um, that
1: air campaign be mainly led by the US? Or is it there? Okay.
2: The other parties, so like France, the UK, Canada, like a bunch of them, um, provide um bombers and weapons and planes and stuff, but it is completely American orchestrated And this is where the tensions come in right America's trying to balance so many things in Syria that really it's it can't it's always been a very ambiguous game they've had to play and at this point Russia Russia's kind of bested them like Russia, had a more long term Syria strategy, actually committed to what they were doing, or rather, while well, the US was very much like, We don't want to get too involved, you want to commit like troops on the ground, and this is now like this messed up picture that we now have. Um, but yeah, like we were talking about Kobani, um, obviously the Kurds were the only really effective ground force against ISIS, which is why the US just threw everything at them, because way better that you let a bunch of Kurds die than. than mm-hmm you know, any, God forbid, like any Westerner. But that becomes, that became an issue when they were driving ISIS out of Kurdish areas and then trying to drive ISIS out of the Arab areas, right? And it's hard to know how, what Arab communities think of them necessarily, because I met a lot of people who had like hobbled over the front line, you know, in the night. Um, and were sort of resting in mosques being given like water by these YPG forces and SDF forces and they only had nice things to say about the YPG and and how they'd come to save them and how nobody else had done that but obviously uh, sorry
1: historically yeah. um, Arabic communities uh, Kurdish communities have been at you know yeah bitter ends haven't they
2: yeah Um. again like not so much in Syria as in other parts of you know, Kurdish kind of areas of influence. But yeah, it's not, it sounds, it's it's really simplistic to break it down into like Kurds versus Arabs, right? Mm. But on broad strokes, like that is what we're talking about. But you know, if you meet an Arab family who have, just come out of like a neighborhood of Raqqa that's been under ISIS rule for the last three and a half years and they're being given water and the women can take their burqas off and they're smoking for the first time in years and they're like, yeah, the YPG are great, we love them. But I mean, that's not necessarily how everyone feels about it. You know, and I met families in refugee camps sort of slightly outside or IDP camps, I guess, whom were very much like, the Kurds need to leave our city. This is not their territory. Yeah. You know, I'd much rather it was taken over by the regime again than then it became a Kurdish town. And it, it won't, I don't think the Kurds have that ambition. But this is the this is the like pressure point, right? It's how yeah. long do they stay there and how long do they secure the city and hold it off? Yeah. And these other areas that are that were Arab that are now occupied by the Kurds. And at what point did they start handing those back, or did the regime move in, or not? So, their kind of very pragmatic strategy is to build up Arab um, civil councils themselves. A lot of them get started by Kurds, and then they hand over the yeah. reins to the local leaders. Like they're mostly, a lot of these, a lot of northeastern Syria is very tribal based, which again is quite hard to sort of um, explain or understand. When you think about it, from like our perspective, but it's literally like like the shake of a town or a city or a village like runs the show. Um, and there will be, you know, you could take a complaint to a court of law or to something more formal, but also the shake can just sort it out a mm-hmm. lot of the time. Um, so like they kind Nathan of Bajana.
1: yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> they do come with the Welsh shake. The Welsh but shake. That, yeah, that's the way I walk.
2: They are handing over and they are strengthening kind of women's councils and, and 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 imposing this Kurdish model of there has to be a man and a woman who runs everything right and even in the Kurdish areas you know it's often there's got to be a, a Muslim and a Christian and a, a Syrian or some you know there's a mix of ethnicities and religions or Yazidi whatever who they were represented represented on on these councils and it works it does I'm trying, it's really hard because I wanted to get into Roger for so long before I actually went to see what this looked like close up and see if it really is everything that like the left thinks it is from the outside. So I try and be very critical and I try and interrogate everything I see because I'm wary of being seen as like a Kurdish fangirl and God knows my Twitter mentions that comes up quite a lot. But from what I have seen, Yeah, they're working on models that are actually yielding results and the only way they can kind of withdraw from these Arab areas without there being a power vacuum and ISIS and extremists coming back in um, or without it sort of falling into regime hands and again being quite unstable Mm. again um, is to, yeah, like build up civic society and to actually give people the tools to do this themselves. And I went, I did go to the Raqqa Civil Council when I was there. It was in this town called Ainisa, which is Arab, which is maybe 45 minutes away, which is where a lot of the operations were based while the campaign was going on before they managed to, like, liberate neighborhoods and, like, move in. And, yeah, like, people queuing up to get, like, their children registered for school and, and rations and, you know... Elections, like all this kind of stuff, is is on the time. It's like in their time frame. Like they want this to happen, and if they can leave Raqqa that way, then they can kind of slowly slip away without there being any more kind of like direct confrontation between the regime and the Kurds again, which isn't in either of their interests. I don't think even want that. But if they stayed in these areas, like that would become an issue at some point.
0: There was, um as you said, the Kurds. It is the Kurds is now being the tip of the spear haven't they going through and obviously they've occupied arab towns and i follow you know loads of different competing you know twitter accounts so my twitter timeline is like you know pro-kurdish and then pro-arab and things like that and so you have like a lot of people being called dogs and things like that but um it did come to there was fighting recently wasn't there in some town between the kurds and well i think the arab, arab local forces basically for the and it was really a tragic thing because it it was over the whose town is this? I'm glad you talk about civics and civil society because it's a broader issue about the Middle East and people always wonder like oh, how do certain groups, let's say it, Islamist groups, rate right, you know, come to prominence? And in many of these countries, it's because war or you know occupation, like in Iraq, just leaves a power vacuum because it destro- it literally destroys towns, it destroys the state doesn't reach into these areas, so it's left to Islamist local groups to fill the void and actually do things like I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood provide people mm-hmm. with yeah. food, with, educa- with education. Yeah. Um, I
1: saw uh, brochures of ISIS running old people's homes. But they do,
0: and uh, but but when we talk about ISIS, obviously you know people think of oh, you know the Islamic State. We think of a fighting force, but it's, it is it's a, a state it's a working and it's a society. State, it? yeah. And but they always provided functions, didn't they? Um, yeah,
2: it's and, also like it can be very tactical. Like if you are. I mean, they're seeing this a lot in Afghanistan at the moment, like the ISIS affiliate there is managing to attract a bunch of local tribes to, to their side, for like lack of a better word. But it's not because they necessarily agree with everything. It's just tactical. Like mm. if it's you and your tribe and some ISIS affiliate tribe versus the Taliban, yeah. like, you know, it's it's all real politics. a lot of it.
0: But I get that definitely gets missed, doesn't it, when we're talking about the Middle East in general, but ISIS yeah. specifically is like this evil group. Um, and obviously, I'm not denying that, but it's it's more nuanced. I remember reading, like an, I think it might be a New York Times op-ed, but it was about studying the, the the young men who joined ISIS. And almost uniformly it said none of them had dads. And the reason they didn't have dads because all their dads had been killed by Americans mm. in the war in Iraq. And it was just saying how it was basically asking, it was really provocative, but it was like, try to fathom the depth of hatred and resentment that is simmering. And these lads, you know, they didn't, go to, didn't, didn't get to go to school because the schools were destroyed, you know. The entire the entire world was destroyed by the invasion of the Middle East. And, and it was really interesting because you start to think, well, and then your report and other people's report and you see these sort of quite intimate profiles of ISIS fighters and they just, they do actually just, especially the young youngsters, seem like ordinary People with normal aspirations, but in ridiculous circumstances. But anyway, I'm not going to propagandize for ISIS anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah, you have to <laughs> payroll <well> now. <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, uh, they but, can't pay <laughs> you now, yeah. yeah one of the, all that oil money's dried them, up. They, them, they, them, they had their own currency. Did they? Yeah. Oh, they I look so hard.
2: I look so hard for an ISIS ISIS money. Fine. I swear to God. They're I called
1: doubloons. Have...
2: The oh, I can't remember what they're called. But. If I'd found any and I put it on eBay, yeah. I, I would be a much richer woman than I am now. Possibly arrested. Did, um, well. did you, get, <laughs> did
0: you um, find any cool like you know merch or uh, to- trinkets when you were over there? <laughs>
1: yeah, I just got a guy just selling like
0: <laughs> yeah Al Baghdadi's eBay store like yeah <laughs> top seller.
2: Did find um, a book about Che Guevara in Arabic oh, in wait. this old science college. And in the inside, it had been, like, annotated with, um, like, obviously quite, like, it was, like, an ISIS, like, lesson, right? It wasn't, yeah. like, a normal history lesson. Um, that was interesting. I didn't bring it with me because um, technically I shouldn't have been there because it might have been mined. Um, oh, yeah. right. But there's there's loads of, like, the propaganda and the and the posters. It's everywhere still. Like, Crazy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so, RACA itself, well, well, I mean, we'll. I think, maybe we'll talk about the, the, the power vacuum. One of the most interesting things about, and you, and maybe that relates to how the, the Kurds are perceived in the Middle East, I don't know, because obviously they've had U.S. support, you know, the, the U.S. have been leading the, whatever it's called, the, the hashtag defeat Daesh campaign and training and arming, although not Syrian, that much.
2: The Syrian Democratic Forces It's oh, yeah, like, so, the name of the, like, umbrella um,
0: force. Yeah, and then because they, they couldn't be seen to arm the YPG, isn't that right, or something... YPG Pretty much, were, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because yeah. the YPG were affiliated with the, or unofficially affiliated with like the PKK, yeah. Um, so the US couldn't
2: not officially, yeah, them, so
0: it couldn't yeah. fund them, so it has to fund D- due to
1: due to them, um, their ongoing beef with Turkey, isn't it? Yeah, so they basically are like, listen, order we're only in it for a bit to defeat ISIS, and we left them, we'll leave them.
0: But I mean, how is that? I mean, in terms of the Kurds themselves, obviously, they know that you know they must know they're getting into the bed with the Americans is fraught with danger and is that something that is talked about you know how do they feel about having the support of the americans
2: um as far as military campaign goes it's fine because they couldn't they couldn't i mean do you
0: want the backing of the world the largest (laughs) ever army um
2: it's um it's funny like the coordination is obviously there and it's now, you know, I've been doing this for almost like more than three years at this point. Like they they have a formula and it works. But I was sitting in a like a de facto like military headquarters, which is just this fancy house in a racker neighborhood that had been liberated. And um, every time an airstrike is going to happen, like it gets, there wasn't any mobile signal or um, data or anything. It was just radio. Um, And the Americans had set up, they've set up camp in East Raka in this old hospital, I think it was, but I wasn't allowed anywhere near it. Like I saw, I saw a couple of Americans who at a distance and it was literally like, like put that camera down. Mm. How dare you point that at us? They're very much like, we're not here. Of course you're here. Yeah. Um, But they coordinate all of the strikes. It's not like a joint thing. And I don't think the way they treat the SDF or the YPG um, top brass is necessarily like it's not like they involve them in decision making. It's just like this is happening. We'll give you the coordinates of this strike. Right. Um, You know, make sure nobody's around it. And it doesn't always work anyway. So it's not quite as like partnershipy as. Yeah. The Americans would like to portray it. Or the Kurds, right? Because it's, you know, demoralizing to be like, we're told what to do by by the people with the air power. But yeah, they, they drive around in their Humvees a lot, but I'm not sure what else they do otherwise. I think their presence there is just kind of reassuring for Turkey. Yeah. But I don't know, politically, or at least, you know, what de-escalation in Syria looks like, because it is moving, like the war is moving into like, it's sort of... next chapter right it's nowhere near over but we are looking now at like what de-escalation deals would look like and you know draft constitutions and that kind of thing and these questions like like what do you do with the Kurds is huge because this is the pinpoint that America and Turkey and Russia all are kind of trying to figure out what everyone else is thinking about it um I think the Syrian Kurds would love to trust the Americans they don't. Nobody does. No. <laughs> Wonder
0: why. No. Um,
2: well, the Iraqi Kurds did. They got a bit.
0: Hmm.
2: Well, sorry, that's not fair. Like the the Iraqi um, the the Iraqi Kurdish like political um, government um, believe that they get more support than they did. Didn't and um,
1: America as well? Uh, they train up the Iraqi army, who subsequently just ran as soon as ISIS showed up on the first assault.
2: Before. Yeah but they also trained the one that has now you know American. like these, these really elite counterterrorism units who completely you know they did the job i mm. mean the amount of innocent people who've been killed in the process is something we're not going to really know the extent of maybe ever but um yeah they trained some really crack forces afterwards but um yeah i don't know in syria the kurds know that they can't trust the americans but they have been dealing with Turkey, you know, since forever. Of
3: course.
2: Um, and they know that Turkish-American relations aren't particularly good. They've only frayed since Trump's been in office. I didn't really think that was possible, but yeah. it, but it is. Um, which leads Russia, right? And Russia has been really good at this kind of um, soft overtures towards them. Like if they If they want to negotiate a kind of Kurdish region that Turkey just has to live with, Russia is their obvious like go-to yeah. mediator, and for Turkey as well. If you're gonna get either of those sides to the table in any way, shape, or form at this point, it looks like Russia is going to be the party that brokers that. America could still, but I think given the current like state of the non-existent State Department and lack of like any kind of foreign policy goals in the Trump administration, it's um, not particularly They're likely. They're out like t- yeah. 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 Um,
0: how does how does the like the strategic relationship with the Americans then impact on how like the Arabs and other sort of people within Syria view the Kurds? Do they think they're like you know American pawns or?
2: Um, Cause no, because someone
0: because that's definitely like from a leftist perspective. Some of the in, you know leftists on Twitter would say, oh, you know the Kurds are you know they've got in bed with the Americans and they've broken up um, the you know the sovereign Syrian state and things like that Um but it's the relationship with the Americans that is that troubles people on the left, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, but then the American-Turkish-Saudi support for the Syrian opposition, or the Arab opposition, such that it exists in very fragmented form now, also troubles them, right? It's all like... It, like, this narrative about destabilising Syria and, and breaking up the state and, and Assad, you know, just trying to hold his country together, like...
1: Poor older son. Yeah, he's, he's the innocent party in this, isn't <laughs> like, he?
2: Like, I do, I can, you know, I can logically understand it, but also, like, my God, like, like five hundred thousand people are dead in this country, and there is one state actor involved, and 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 they instigated, at least in the beginning, a lot of that. Like, it's not excusable. It's just not. I don't know. I think. No, the Arabs have always been distrustful. There's always been distrust between those communities in Syria. I don't think they know America exists as this big bad influence outside of it, but the Kurds are being in bed with America is not necessarily something that they see. Like they, they do know also that the Americans are getting rid of ISIS. Yeah. Like. They do understand, like again, on a pragmatic level, like that's necessary to not become a party in the war anymore. Like it's just the only thing you can do is stop blowing them up.
0: We will go on to these like big power relations and the great game or whatever. You know, it's going to pan out as in a sec. But with my education hat on, in that Financial Times article I read, amazing insight into sort of the these like feminist schools, for want of a better word, run by the SDF in former you know ISIS occupied territories. And there's an amazing quote. It says, "You during four years of ISIS rule, as you said, women were forced to wear black from head to toe and spend nearly all their time at home." And some women in the newly SDF-controlled territory have shown curiosity towards an organisation where women carry rifles and govern alongside men. Archilan-inspired policy requires every leadership position to be shared between a man and a woman, which is what you said earlier. But the insight into the school when they say it was like who sm- was it, it, it? Who smashes the Kurds? Was it?
2: Oh, it's um who's who smashes man the state? Oh yeah, yeah. And then who? Who smashes woman man? Oh like, yeah, it, it, it's uh yeah the trickle down of like the. Power dynamic. But they're
0: getting, you know, proper theoretical lessons on, like, feminism and, and people are signing up to it.
2: Yeah. It's called genealogy, spelt J-I-N-E-ology, not, like, the other type.
1: Yeah. Is, is that from gene being uh, the Kurdish word for woman? Yes. Yeah. yeah.
2: Jinda, or something like that. I can't remember. Uh, um, All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. So it's literally women's studies. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, like... I spent some time with a Yazidi women's unit in Raqqa whom were all originally from the other side of the border. They were from like the Yazidi parts of Iraq. And all this stuff was new to them as well. You're also like, it's so hard to like convey how young these people are. Mm. They're literally teenagers. Like if you're talking about indoctrination, like you've got ISIS on one side of the coin, right? And then you've got like this Kurdish, um, you know, post-Marxist, feminist stuff being shoved down your throat in the other side of the coin. And they're so young. I mean, I was talking to this unit leader who was 26. And I and I and I commented on it. I was like, everyone, you're the oldest in this unit. The others are like 20. And she's like, yeah, well, all the older ones have been killed. Like, where do you mm-hmm. think they are? I was like, really good point. Yeah. Really good point. Well made. They're, they're all dead because uh, they've been living this and fighting for it. Yeah, and I mean... Even for me, right? Like wandering around somewhere as surreal as Raqqa, and there are like as many women as men there with guns, barking orders, like telling people what to do. I mean, you don't necessarily get that in like a working environment in the West, let alone somewhere like the front line against ISIS.
1: I'm all women now.
2: <laughs> it was. I mean, it was. It was fascinating for me. So, how an Arab woman, who. Got pulled out of school when ISIS came along. Maybe she was never going to do anything like that anyway. Feels to see these women walking through town with their braided headscarves and their fatigues and stuff. Yeah, it must be just completely, just. it must just, it's completely outside of everything you could even, because you don't get any news. Yeah. They have no idea what's going on in the outside world if you're in an ISIS controlled town. Like maybe rumors spread, like someone's got a mobile phone and they get the odd text message. But, um, you don't really know what's happened in the rest of the world, like why you've been inside it. Yeah. So it must just be completely eye-opening to see that that is a role that you can fill. And if you have spent four years basically in the house, you've had a lot of time to think about what you would do with your life if you managed to get out of it, right? And when and if ISIS are eventually defeated and you get to live your life again. There have been a lot of Arab and Yazidi recruits who've signed up. A lot of it is vengeance, <laughs> completely understandably like can you imagine what it must feel like to have sisters daughters cousins like friends like like there are still so many Yazidi women who were not found when Raqqa was liberated there are thousands and thousands of Yazidi slaves who are just not accounted for which means they're probably dead and no one knows where they are so you've been fighting to liberate your town or whatever and like the surrounding towns around Raqqa they did get quite a lot of Male and female Arab recruits. I tried to find numbers, but they're not really that readily available.
0: Uh, yeah, I did read somewhere that the you know the YPG and you know SDF will, will now have a significant number of Arab, Arabs in there anyway.
2: The SDF, according to the Americans, numbers um, about forty thousand troops, which seems like a very high estimate to me. Mm. And the Americans say that more than half of that is Arab, not Kurdish. Right. Which, again, I don't think can be true. Hmm. Mainly because, you know, there haven't been enough Arab men out of these areas long enough to even get trained, let alone, you know, I just, it, it can't be right. But they sell it that way because then it's, you know, it's not a Kurdish movement, right? It's a it's a joint movement.
0: When you were in Raqqa then, Beth, and were you, um, I guess, were you just obviously you are on the front line Union Racket. Are you going, following on with, you're not embedded in operations? Or was it there just, do you know what I mean? Because obviously it's such a, it looked like Fallujah or something, like looking at, and I think there was that, I can't remember where that reporter was from, but there was that reporter that got basically caught in the Humvee. Because obviously, the, the, as anyone knows, the more a city gets bombed, the better it is for the defenders because they can just dig in. There's I a huge network of tunnels and stuff. And there was that, Report from well, well but, she, but they were just going in this Humvee, and obviously oh. they got ambushed, and so they were stuck there for like twenty-four hours or something. Oh, but that
2: was um, I think that was Arwa That was the CNN team in nuts. Mosul. Yeah, oh, Mosul. Yeah, I think it was Mosul. That but I'm
0: but I'm wondering what it's like then in Raqqa as a journalist. You know, are you sort of just embedded in the units and as they're advancing, or do you um, just go? You go on, and then we'll come once you've cleared it. Or
2: so, even though they were like you know, the twin offensives, Mosul and Raqqa, um, the way they played out on the ground was very different. Right. You couldn't officially embed with anybody. I don't think that's really been an American-led policy anyway since the Iraq war because so many journalists yeah. got killed and also were privy to things that they didn't want journalists to see. Um, no, especially
1: after Max Hastings. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. So in Mosul... You know, when the when the campaign started, it was very much you were told. You know, you're not allowed to embed. Be careful, but you're basically on your own. Really? Well, I mean, no, not in, not in practice, you weren't. Like, but you could go in with Iraqi units, but they sort of left you a lot more to your own devices. In that sense, it was a lot more dangerous. I think Mosul was much more unpredictable than than Raqqa was. Raqqa, everything was SDF controlled. You you had a minder with you at all times but I mean I like, a a guy I spent a week with was, he was 19 like I'm not even kidding oh. <laughs> it was just a bit like so if that was a, su- a car suicide bomb like what would you do exactly like you've been trained for six weeks you're literally a child um you know it doesn't in reality make any difference um but you did need the SDF say so to go anywhere and that was really frustrating from a journalistic perspective massively um I mean, I don't know if you saw, but um, right at the end of the campaign, which was October, mid-October, I'd left by then, but they'd shut down all journalistic access to the front for about four or five days. And it was clear that there was some kind of evacuation deal going on, right? And um, they just didn't want us knowing about it um, until it was done. And I can understand their reasons for that from a strategic point of view, But it didn't make sense just to keep us in the dark which is what they did um so literally next thing you know there was there was social media footage of you know trucks of isis fighters just being allowed to leave the city Mm. right and i think that was the right move to make i think it saved lives because you had the football stadium and the hospital was still completely full of human shields there was no way to fix that situation except letting ISIS leave and surrender or you bomb it those were the only two options so as that goes it was the better idea but um it opened them up to a lot of criticism because if you don't let journalists see what you're doing and you you know you don't even feed them a line right you just block it off and you say it's oh it's a, it's a it's not safe it's an operation like, well, we know what you're doing we're not stupid mm. and in the end we were all racing to Piece together what happened there first because journalist friend of mine was there at the time for the newswire, and I said like what are the what are the IDPs coming out telling you about what happened? And she was like we're not even allowed near the camps like you know it's just I'll tell you when we know anything. So that story got pieced together by the BBC eventually, and it was very critical of the SDF mm. and the way they handled themselves, and they were really angry about it. And that was that was the point where. A lot of the Kurds suddenly, you know, were like, oh, the West, like, will back us as long as we're fighting ISIS and doing their dirty work. But as soon as, as soon as, you know, we're done, it's done. We we, we won and they've already turned against us. It's not fair. And I can see that side of the argument. But also, like, if you don't explain or feed the line that you want to be out there, you can't be surprised when it doesn't, you know, the story doesn't look the way you want it to look. The FDF
0: needs. Peter Mandelson character to the line everywhere yeah all right so what was your day-to-day routine then I mean obviously it's hard for us to fathom that you've been in right you've just come back from Raqqa but you know where you where you sleep in where you live in what did you do like
2: most of the campaign was well to get into Syria first off you have to beg the Iraqi KRG for permission because they were not on well they're still not on particularly good terms and that took me a really, really, really long time. And it is based on the whim of like whoever's in the office that day or picking up their email and you have to kind of call and call and call and pop into the to the government building in Nabil to be like, hey, it's me again, not going away. Please let me over. I have an invite letter. You know, all these Roger Ver politicians have been asking me to come for ages. Like I know what I'm doing. So eventually I got that and it was only for a particular day. It was between like morning and lunchtime or something and i hadn't gotten out like any money i wasn't prepped like i didn't i think i had to get my flat jacket sent from beirut i had to get a friend to bring it because i just wasn't ready but it worked out (laughs) and you drive a really 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 long way to that corner where turkey iraq and syria meet Mm -hmm. i can't remember the name of the crossing um fiskabor and there's this tiny little tributary of the Euphrases, and you cross it in a boat, like I'm not even kidding, this like little blue like dingy thing. And then you're in Syria and it's like, ah, oh, wow. After all of that, it was literally just a boat ride, which took about five minutes. Um, and then you drive a really long time, really long time. You have to check in with the Kurdish authorities and with a lot of the YPG and the SDF like as you go. And I was there with a, my fixer, Osama, who is... Wonderful guy, I I swear to God like, he's probably gonna like run run Rojava one day like he's that like switched on, and he knows everyone and and everyone likes him and you know he's great and I wouldn't have been able to do without him like absolutely no way but you drive a really long way to Kobani, um, but the roads in Rojava are quite good because obviously like the Kurdish authorities have been maintaining them, um, but then Kobani. Um, was the base for most of the journalists who were covering it. There weren't a lot of us. It took such a long time to get there. Like, we're talking, like, a day of driving. And the roads after that are really bad. Like, honestly, that was one of the worst things about it. It was really hot, and the roads were terrible. The roads were, like, they made you sick. And you had to drive maybe, like, four hours from Kobani to Raqqa every day. Um, Oh, my God. Yeah. And the roads terrible.
0: Yeah, I'd have been like, Nah. Nah. (laughs) terrible that is the worst commute ever and then what so you just actually have to go back in the evening
2: yeah
1: so you're yeah, so like it a was, day release like
2: it was a curfew i mean you wouldn't want to stay in Raqqa overnight no. anyway well actually with mosul once they've gotten through the east of the city a lot of freelancers i know started just staying in mosul overnight rather than going back to Erbil, which again is like a two-hour drive it saved time and money but it was oh, it's not it wasn't really safe
0: so who i mean are you paying people all the time for this like you know, you're paying for like. tax. Yeah, but you know, is it taxis you're paying or like?
2: No, um, Osama no had no contactless
0: a... over there. Yeah. <laughs> no, every, everything's cash. Yeah, oh. no,
2: everything is serious is cash. Osama had a great four by four that actually looked like one of the American cars. I think he got it smuggled in. It's a great car. So
1: how did they smuggle that in? That's I a, I did ask him. Uh, I, I did
2: ask him, but I've forgotten. Um, but then you know you they
1: painted it like a cow or something
2: <laughs> just big white I think he must have just said it was for the Americans and it came off the back of a truck. yeah it must, <laughs> must have been how, how that works because they do allow full that stuff full of DVD players from, yeah because yeah, they allow that stuff over from Iraq right like these like convoys of stuff which is all for the Americans like brand new like Humvees tanks like you name it it's incredible like these convoys are like miles long you're not no you're not paying people There was a school building in Kobani that I slept in, which was where like all the foreigners slept. But I mean, like the aid organizations were based in this one town, this one Kurdish town right on the Turkish border and they weren't allowed to go anywhere else. Like any of their implementation was done by local staff. Um, There were no diplomats. There were barely like, there was a handful of Americans in Raqqa. I'm assuming like special forces. Um, But there are no foreigners there. Like absolutely not so yeah they were all just kind of like there was there were two brazilian photographers i met while i was there and this dutch guy oladimir who is usually based in Obile, he's quite big on twitter if you you know if you want to know anything about the kurds like he will hook you up he's great <laughs> and That was kind of it
0: but when you're when you're back in Cabani, you sleep in what? In like, is it is it bombed out? Is it like uh, you know? No, the, Cabani
2: looks pretty good these days. Oh, right. Yeah, they've rebuilt a lot of it.
0: But you, but you're so you're not staying in like it's okay
1: accommodation sort of
2: thing. Yeah. Okay, I mean, water, it was hot. Run, but running, like, running
1: water, things like that. What are the TripAdvisor reviews like? Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it wasn't luxurious. It was a school that had been turned into like a makeshift like hotel. It didn't have power twenty four seven. It didn't have ac and it was very 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 hot it didn't really have it either had boiling hot water or no water i slept on the roof really <laughs> yeah it was much cooler yeah i like lugged the uh, lugged the duvet off, and it was it was fine
0: can you see fighting and stuff from,
2: not from still cabani. Not, not cabani i mean i can show you no matter like, cabani is right on the turkish border yeah um and then yeah it's like a four hour drive south then oh, to right, so, yeah. yeah that's too far yeah so back in back when isis still controlled more then yeah you would like hear and see things but like they they shrunk back into raqqa by that point
0: okay so oh, my questions i've got this, it does sound like i'm a, a propaganda propagandist <laughs> for isis but i guess i mean people think you know obviously I, the, the formal battle against isis has been i guess one but they still control large ways of territory and if you if you actually watch ISIS videos, they're still conducting these like blitzkrieg raid, like ambushes with people and um, they mine mined everything. But what next? It just seems they're just going to go back to being an insurgency, right? They're not going to go away.
2: The mines, actually, the mines are, are what is really like fucking stuff up now. I think the UN has contracted the demining out to some company. I have it written in my notes, but I can't remember the name of it. I've been meaning to look into it.
1: Carillion. <laughs> that yeah.
2: would explain why they're doing such yeah. a shit job yes um <laughs> but like mines are gonna kill as many people as the battle did like everything is mine like jack holmes and yeah like, i was gonna it, say it, like,
1: that was awful last day he's yeah. he's about to go home like it's
2: yeah yeah like and you know everyone then knew that that was gonna be the case that like, you know whatever unit you're in like at least one of you is gonna get killed by a fucking mine like Nothing. It would honestly be like cheaper, easier, and safer just to like rebuild a new racca next to old racker yeah. than to clear that city. It is crazy. So that's the legacy that they have left, which is gonna really screw things up for a really long time to come. They they will morph back into more of an insurgency type you know entity. But I mean, like we've seen so many times over, even in like recent history, right? Like Taliban, Al-Qaeda, mm. like you can't kill that. Like,
1: It'll always rebrand, won't it? Yeah, mm.
2: definitely. And they will, as long as, you know, the world order stands as it is, there are always going to be people who join because they have personal grievances, because they've got nothing else to do with their lives. Like it's completely hopeless. Like when you say like America to... We can talk about that more in Yemen because the levels of like education in Yemen are so much lower. Like people literally like join up to the Houthis, and you're like, "Why did you join?" And they're like, "Oh, they told me I'd be fighting the Americans and the Israelis," and you're there like,
0: "Nope."
2: Did they? And you believed them. Um, but this is this is what we're talking about. Like, it's not like a country of people; it's just some like big, bad, shadowy entity. And yeah.
0: And as we, and as we talked about. Uh, off air it, it blew my mind reading this story the other day that the Iraqi government is currently basically undertaking you know mass executions of suspected ISIS fighters which doesn't look I mean and there's been like human alleged human rights abuses like you know, no, no due process oh it's um, horrific and that is obviously there was kind of, kind of obviously that's going to happen there are going to be recriminations but in terms of you know, rebuilding a state and bringing like the Sunni population and Shia population together, it's just, it just seems that that's just awful. And and you said you, you, there are still prisons, mass prisons over there.
2: Yeah. 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 There are thousands and thousands of men in these prisons. The conditions in some of them are horrific. Like you are talking, um, Men sitting cross legged in a room with their hands tied behind their backs for days and days and weeks on end in, you know, plus 50 degree temperatures. A lot of them end up having to be pulled out and getting their limbs amputated because of the conditions they're being held in. And, you know, you meet some of these people and they will tell you that they're innocent and they got picked up you know, they don't have papers to prove it, but if they could just call their wife or just call their daughter, then, you know, they could prove who they were and they don't get any due process, it's nothing.
0: Just get in jail.
2: Nothing, it's it's absolutely like unfathomable that like this won't have repercussions down the line, like absolutely no way. And, and as bad as Iraq is, at least there is this semblance of, you know, putting them through mass trials and stuff and justice and whatever. I mean, a lot of them are really bad people. I mean, whether you agree with the death penalty or not, like that's a different issue. But the trials themselves are just not fair. How do you you try an entire like ideology? Like you can't. But I mean, you know, Britain and France and a bunch of other places have been like, oh yeah, our citizens can just stay there. And yeah, like fine, you know, sentence them, sentence them to death, like do what you want. We don't want them back, which is just as bad. Like if that's the example that like they're being led by, it's... It's horrific. And that's Iraq where you have, you know, a functioning federal state that can deal with that. Syria, um, there are a lot of these, well, they mostly fight to the death or they were at least up until the end. Like there were a lot of people bust out of Iraq. It was not really clear how many, but you wouldn't want to end up in a Kurdish prison. You know, I have a lot of time for the Roger experiment and for the things that, you know, these people are trying to do, but the Arabs often fling like ethnic cleansing allegations at them, like human rights watch. <sighs> yeah, I think cleansing is
0: interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. it's like it's a nebulous term in itself because yeah, it course. can refer to population transfer, which can obviously it sounds like a whitewash, but it can just involve bussing people out of places and then will, you've you've taken over our town and stuff, but
2: I mean there are enough sort of teenagers and badly trained people in the YPG and the SDF, you know, you give like an 18-year-old for the testosterone a gun and you don't really train him. Like, it's not really surprising that stuff that shouldn't happen, happens. It's just the reality of the situation. Didn't you
1: say before, there's quite a quick turnaround in training, isn't it? It's just like a month, six weeks, you're done.
2: I think it is six weeks, yeah. Which is nothing. (laughs) Like, they're not, you know, and it's a wage, right? Like, Mm. you get paid, I think... 200 us dollars a month for being in the SDF, and that is crazy money for a lot of people yeah and if you're not you know a lot of them were just bored kicking around because they don't get posted to the front often enough to do Mm. anything and they're not necessarily highly trained or fit or you know capable of strategic thinking they're just like you you fill a you know a house on the front line until someone else relieves you just because that's that's your job yeah it's dangerous and it is not awesome. fun. Um, but a lot of it is really boring.
1: So do do you think that the boredom kind of plays into the kind of the bloodthirstiness? Um plays into the strong Twitter game. Yeah, yeah, pretty much.
0: <laughs> well I do have to ask as well. I mean I just don't get it. I mean, how are people how are so many Western fighters on Twitter? Like yeah, Is they got like, is it Roman like <clears> they got a good Roman deal or <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I just don't understand it. Yeah, like, I was surprised at that when they were saying like, you know, you can barely get our supplies, but like the Wi Fi is amazing.
2: Yeah, that um I wondered about that too before I went. So
1: it's in case th- anyone's wondering about going over. Yeah, that well that's yeah. the main reason I didn't Yeah, it's bad bad signals and then potentially. There's no, t- there's no Tinder in uh, mm. <laughs> no t- no tinder in Syria like. There is. Really? Is there actually?
2: Well, I mean, you know, if you if you've got it on your phone and you manage to find Wi Fi and oh, you know, right, yeah, you've well, set well, the yeah. boundaries wide enough, you'll pick up someone. Yeah. yeah. Um, just some veiled, horny veiled,
1: horny, like, horny, person, like, in, uh, you know, just some rubble- Do you with any tongue. baggage? Um, <laughs> I'm- <laughs>
2: <laughs> For the- Because um, I wondered about this. I was like, oh, so, you know, you can't get- Nothing gets in or out. There's no signal. Like, nobody can communicate with their families. But um, also, you know, you post things to your Facebook pages. Like, how does that work? But actually- um, I think the network is pretty much up across the whole region now.
0: Better than Wales, yeah, it is.
2: <laughs> do you know what? It would not surprise me. It mm. wouldn't. Um, <laughs> so God. I think now is 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 different. Like people do actually have much more access to Wi-Fi and data packages and so stuff.
0: Would westerners go and take their phones over, or would they just have to buy one out there?
2: I um,
1: think a lot of them roll with Kindles, don't they? I don't know i just i don't know that's what i mean it's
0: like
2: yeah it's i mean you take your phone it's just when you're on the front line
1: taking nintendo switch like
2: <laughs> when you're on the front line you wouldn't have got any when the sdf took a new neighborhood they set up a new interim base in every neighborhood and that gets wi-fi um but that won't necessarily be connected for a few days and if you're just a soldier you can't walk in and use it right like, oh yeah of course but because you get rotated out every like four to six weeks or whatever, so you'll go back to Kobani, you'll go back to Kamishli, you'll go back to like a town which really functions properly. And then I guess you'll belatedly upload a bunch of your pictures and talk to people and stuff. So it tends, you do, they they didn't have signal for like days or weeks at a time and then they get some.
0: All your matches load. That yeah, have actually got, and you got like one. You know, it's been like <laughs> <laughs> and gone, gone. And you've, you've been active there for like weeks and weeks and
1: weeks. Like I haven't had any because the signal's terrible. but No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the real kind of frustration.
2: Holding the out, one. holding out the hope.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just you know attracting. Right, so
0: like, well, that solves that problem because I didn't really understand it. Um, so oh, now you're
1: going to go over, is it?
0: <laughs> no, but all right, then, Bethan. I mean, what happens next? Then, I mean, in terms of this, like the the, the power vacuum that's sort of developing. I mean. People have said for a while that the end of ISIS is just, as you said, the start of a new chapter of incredibly complex, like a, a incredibly complex power struggle involving, you know, Russia, America, Iran, Turkey. I mean, who wants? I mean, this is a big question, but who who wants what? And what do you think is likely to happen next? Oh my god! In one to minute or less, yeah, solve it, yeah. solve it, yeah. Also,
2: also Syria, in what nine rounds of Geneva talks have been unable to do, yeah. <laughs> so. The parallel, like peace process that Russia has, has created in Astana, has actually come out with some really good stuff. As far as they've drafted a constitution, you know, they are actually trying to involve the Kurds to some extent. You know, it's this is progress that like the binary of Geneva hasn't been able to address because it's literally opposition versus regime, and neither is unbudge. Yeah, um, it's completely broken. It's not to say like you can't achieve things with it, but it it is like fundamentally like from the get go, it was never going to work um so hopefully like the un resolution that is like for peace in syria is resolution 2254 i did not just read that. well remembered um but what hopefully like the parallel talks in Astana will do is feed what they've managed to achieve and figure out and, and thrash out back into this resolution back into geneva so on one level like all of the world powers do want peace in this country, right? It's it's just they want to come out on top. As far as the Syrian Kurds go, I think if they, you know, I mean they're they're quite politically like astute. They 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 know they can't really trust anyone and they need to be careful with which alliances they make or don't make. I think they're going to need to rely on Russia as a broker between them and Turkey and them and the regime. I think that is probably the best case scenario for that pocket of Syria and as far as like Rojava goes but the issue is like ISIS was the common enemy right and now that's gone and that doesn't pose so many issues for Syria itself because you know um, the Assad government has taken now controls a lot more of the country than it did like say before 2016 it is moving into this sort of like end chapter where you might get Idlib um, the only pockets Sorry, this is terrible. Like, like structure of my argument. Like, you'll never gonna be able to use this. Yeah,
3: <laughs> it. Um, yeah we will put on repeat.
2: You've got so you've got Idlib, which is still in opposition in the north, and you've got this pocket um, Al Tanf, which is down by the Jordanian border. So they might just stay opposition controlled and become a bit like you get like with Kandahar in in, in Afghanistan, just like overrun by like jihadists yeah. and poor the people who happen to be involved in it. But eventually, yeah, like the regime is going to assert its control over that. I think they'll leave Rojava alone because that's a new front. They can't. No one really wants to reopen. No one has the time, money, effort for that. The issue with ISIS sort of fading as a like state, uh, sorry, as like a as like a real like you know land holding actor in the war is basically um, Hezbollah and. Israel and Iran's attention can get reshifted back onto themselves. Mm. So that's the long-reaching danger spot. I think that no one really knows what that's going to look like.
0: What about? I mean, from on Twitter, it just looks as if some of the you know the so-called moderates, like you know HTS and things like that, hmm. look as if they really got their shit together and started.
2: HTS are moderate.
0: And yeah, yeah, they like, that's the rebranded Al Qaeda, isn't it? Yeah, but. But they were still seen. They're, they're, they're coming back, aren't they? Can you honestly foresee a situation where, like, radical radical Islam or jihadist Islam is ever sort of stamped out in the region?
2: No, or, there'll always be pockets of it.
0: Do you think they'll, they'll be brought on the table? Will they be brought on the table? Alai Owen Smith
2: <laughs> and Corvin. No. <laughs> Get them all around. Yeah. A, come, in, on, in come on. In other words, um, Owen
1: Smith can brag about his cock size and yeah. it'll just unite the table yeah, in the Middle East.
2: I uh, I would really like to see Owen Smith sit down with with someone in HTS. That would okay, he's
0: be... taking Spotify tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Although <laughs> what, what I will say about HTS, and also I said before I forget, a lot of them are rocking like the long hair, like backwards, the backwards cap, and it just looks it is a it is a good look. It's like quite tight. I think it's quite cool fashion.
1: Who is paying um, you, down? <laughs> <laughs> well, no,
0: but you can't. I, I can't help it. As a as a balding, rapidly balding man, the hair on these ISIS fighters in the video—they it just—it's amazing. They just—I don't know. They just how have they all got such thick, lustrous hair?
1: It's all uh all the shampoo, isn't it, and it's the conditioning, a, it's Yeah, it's a
2: joining requirement. They yeah. don't, they don't let you in unless you've got like L'Oreal locks. They have got, them got in. that's that's
1: the actual thing. The Caliphate is just their brand of um, shampoo. <laughs> they're hoping to launch, so they're just going to like take <laughs> over big amounts. I can't be the only one that's
0: seen some of the you know the videos and thought. That guy's hair is
1: immense. Well, loads of people, the kids are getting radicalized because the hair is so good.
0: Like, no,
2: they they honestly only put like the good-looking people in the propaganda videos. You like, you in the
0: front, you in the
1: back.
2: <laughs> no, seriously, like it oh, works. Oh,
1: oh, get the hell out of that shot.
0: It works the
2: same way as any branding does. Yeah, like, you want it to look good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's shiny. Well, I was thinking,
1: I mean, ISIS have, ISIS
0: has a marketing it. department. You know, they've got like graphic designers. They've got people wearing like people who not like short. They wouldn't look mm. like they would in Shoreditch, but Square glasses and the hipster guy on the laptop, like oh god, my
1: face. In sandals, Abadadadi
0: like my daddy is so unreasonable. <laughs> yeah.
1: All
0: right. So the, lastly, I want to talk about the relationship between, I guess, the, the different parts of Kurdistan because we know that Bazani, you know, the he's like maybe a tyrant, the guy that runs Iraqi Kurdistan and is the KRG as his party, I believe. And the Peshmerga is the standing army of Iraqi Kurdistan.
2: Yeah, the KRG is the government, oh, sorry, but yeah. his party runs the government. Yeah. But what's
0: but what then is that? It's a strained relationship, as far as I understand, between the Iraqi you know, Iraqi Kurdistan government and Rojava administration. And how do you foresee all that playing out?
2: I don't know. I really don't. It's well, but didn't
0: they didn't they just, as you said, they nip something in the bud recently? Didn't the Iraqi Kurdistan stop something happening? Were they called the independence called an independence referendum or something or
2: Yeah, no, they um they in the moment of hubris they thought I mean also like the KRG in Iraq is so well armed and it has such a huge arsenal and a well trained like between the Peshmerga and other forces. Like it rivals like a lot of European countries. So I wouldn't be surprised. It is like immensely powerful in a, in and of it itself, thanks to, you know, international coalition, anti-ISIS yeah. coalition money. They Pozani decided to host the referendum in September. It has sort of more than an independence referendum. It has more like Brexit parallels, as in it was a it wasn't a referendum on on Kurdish independence or you know Kurdish autonomy because literally any Kurdish meet will will be like yes of course I want that like, if you give me that yeah. that vote I'm obviously going to vote for it. Um, and it wasn't supposed to be binding. This was the the card they kept t- using to calm Baghdad down and Turkey down. Was was oh, it's just uh it's like a it's it's a ma- it's, so we have a mandate for knowing what to do next with you know because there are supposed to be elections and stuff for the next round of elections. Um, I just got a text message from someone in Syrian Kurdistan. He's back in Raqqa. Oh my god. <laughs> um, yeah, he's great. I was talking to him about. Um, going to Yemen and he was like, Beth, you can't go to Yemen. You know, it's really dangerous there. And I'm like, mate, we are literally driving into Raqqa where you work every day. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Perspective is a hell of a, hell of a thing. Oh, sorry. What was I saying? Kog, Yeah, Kog, Yeah, they are Barzani's party, the name of which escapes me, currently, because we've been talking for quite a while now, is very corrupt. Looks a bit like Welsh Labour, to be honest. <laughs> Um, and going.
1: there it is, yeah.
2: <laughs> Good. And it the was get a,
0: loads of other people's money. Mm.
2: Yeah. Oh god, gotcha. yeah. And it gets just.
0: trousered. It.
2: Honestly, it's like a sieve. Um, all this rebuilding money, which is maybe you know for Arab communities as well as for Kurdish ones, it is insane. The amounts of money disappear in that government. So the referendum was really um, about consolidating the Bazani family's power, than about you know actually creating an independent Kurdistan. And again, like as as you were saying earlier, that's not really what you know current Kurdish political theory thinking really wants at the moment, because they know that they're dealing with so many governments that aren't going to give them what they want. Um, like Baghdad, Ankara, Tehran, Damascus, none of them. Uh, and they were powerful enough to crush any, you know, Kurdish movement, as they have done a lot in the past. So, yeah, that was, that didn't go so well. <laughs> it has ended up with the Kurds in Iraq losing a lot of territory that they've held since they got ISIS out of a lot of areas. Some some disputed, like Kirkuk, for example, is really like rich in oil and both you know it's in it ethnically it's mixed as well like it's part kurdish part arab they now don't control that and that was a big like feather in their cap um they just folded because baghdad went we're not having any of this and uh america didn't just sort of stepped away from it and and yeah it's not a good model for the other movements and the other parts of kurdistan basically like this sort of stateless democracy idea of like working on a very local level you know it has been working. It does work. I don't know if the Turkish, Kurdish, I can't remember what what the Kurds call their part of Turkey, but um, they would, they will probably not ever manage anything like that as long as the current Turkish political scene looks Mm. like it does, which is, yeah, it's, it is absolutely crazy. And it's a story it doesn't really get talked about or reported like half as much as it should.
0: Full-blown fascism.
2: Yeah, but yeah. ISIS is the, you know, sexy story, isn't it? So yeah. this is the other thing, is that because ISIS have now been defeated, I'm quite worried that all these rebuilding stories and, and you know, what the Kurds are doing are just going to fade out of the headlines. Like It already has to some extent. But, you know, they're there and they're showing whether it works or not. Ultimately, they are showing that there is another way to govern in the Middle East, right? It doesn't have to be
3: yeah.
2: like religious autocracy. It doesn't have to be a military regime. There is this third way. And even if it does crash and burn, at least like the next movement in the next war, because let's be honest, it's going to happen at some point, you know, maybe they can build on that. I don't know. It's, it is a big, it's a process. And you can ask, you know, you ask her this themselves. It's like, how do you stay hopeful when everything and everyone is against you? And they're literally like, well, what else do you do? You know, mm-hmm. it's just, this is it. This is just how they have to live, so.
0: Beth, is there any um, anyone you want to give a shout out to
1: or? Just, just... a beef with al-Baghdadi, yeah.
2: <laughs> Al-Baghdadi, yeah, uh, that's the... Erdogan. And his brother. All of them, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think... Uh, to be honest, on Twitter on any given day, it's like a toss-up between whether the Israelis or the Saudis hate me more. Oh, so I'm not going to, you know, give them any more ammunition. It's bad enough as it is.
1: Mm. Very sensible. Could I start a beef with all the Saudi princes? You are? I might do. All of them? Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: So Beth McKernan, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, been, well, it's been inspirational, extremely educational. Um, I hope you have a good time when you go back to Beirut.
2: Yeah.
1: Beijing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah no
2: pleasure. Um, like I say, the Kurds do know they do know what Wales is, and they do know of like Wales as being you know country without country. Um, mm. I'm sure. I'll send I'll send the recording to a bunch of them and see what they think. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. we can start do. our own, like, uh, YPJ uh, movement named yeah. after us. Cross, cross-cultural, you know, yeah.
2: cooperation. We, we
1: could send, you know, yeah kids over and stuff. Like, uh, <laughs> right. All right, thanks so much.
0: <laughs> Thank you, there, Then. Thanks so much, Beth, and extremely educational. As I said, this is a part of a series we're going to be doing on international affairs. I guess, so straight into shout-outs. Uh, shout-out to me, to Emily Dreher, the editor of Planet. Um, I mean, we talk about the bad state of the media in Wales, but Planet really is just like remarkably well written. I've been reading it the latest ep- the latest episode, rather the latest uh, edition of Planet, and it's just yeah, it's just fantastic how well written it is, how interesting it is, and and I think it's only fifteen pound to subscribe for the year. It's
1: twenty two. Uh, I've been looking into it, uh, and okay. I've, I haven't got it yet. So, but it, know, it really,
0: look. it really is a worthwhile investment. I mean, amidst like how amidst you know with, with the media landscape, not just in Wales but worldwide, just dominated by idiot, you know. Idiocy, really, and just terrible writing and, and lack of insight. I know it's just yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're in part of that, definitely. Yeah. But it's it's just really refreshing. So shout out to Emily and people of planet for continuing producing some good stuff, and also solidarity from us to the I think it's like seventy thousand jailed HDP members in the Turkey at the moment, which no one really says anything about. So Are you gonna start a beef with anyone? Well, beef with people in like labour and plight and stuff who just don't use their platform to express solidarity with these comrades uh
1: okay shouts from me i want to give a shout out to my barber who i mentioned earlier who uh i think his, his brother might be fighting over there mm. and for, for turkey <laughs> no for uh isis yeah for ISIS. he's just you know a gun for hire pretty for much your bucky b holding it down in isis <laughs> <laughs> uh no, for uh, ypg um my beef uh i've been thinking about this and my beef is with anyone who uses the term melt. I think they just, it's just an awful term used by all people. It's, it's a hate, it's a hateful slur. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird word used by middle class Londoners who want to act working class and it just does my head in every time someone calls someone else a melt. Okay, cool. I just think the person doing it is a bell end. Um, also, uh, we now have t shirts that we're taking pre orders for. Oh, yeah, man. So if, um, anyone, you know, if, like me, your mom makes fun of your clothes a lot and you want to do something to remedy that, uh, we're, uh, we're launching our own clothing line. About so, um, time. Yeah, we'll, we'll link that on Twitter and Facebook. So get in touch with us and give us some money, please. Yeah, basically. So, uh, yep, that's it for this week. Peace out, everyone. Bye. Peace out.
3: I was just a boy when the infidels came to my village in their Black Hawk helicopters. The infidels fired at the oil fields and they lit up like the eyes of Allah. Burning oil rained down from the sky and cooked everything it touched. I could only hide myself and cry as my goats were consumed by the fiery black liquid death. In the midst of the chaos, I could swear that I heard my goats screaming for help. As quickly as they had come, the infidels were gone. It was on that day, I put a jihad on them. And if you don't believe it, then you better kill me now, because I'll put a jihad on you, too.
2: I like you. You have balls. I like balls.